We are continuing this morning with our study of Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, picking up this morning at verse 1 of chapter 7 and working through to verse 6 of the same chapter. For any of you maybe who are new or visiting this morning and maybe are not familiar with the book of Romans, let me quickly try and orient you to what's going on and to where we are in our study of this letter. Uh, very quickly. Presently, we are actually in what I would consider the third main section of this letter. In the first main section, Paul introduced his gospel, that is, the good news centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul introduced us to that and told us why everyone needs the forgiveness and mercy offered in the gospel, namely because we are all sinful and unrighteous in God's eyes. So in short, the first main section introduced this universal sin problem of humanity. In the second main section, Paul talked about how God has handled our unrighteousness. Namely, he talked about how God addresses our sin problem by supplying a righteousness, that is, a right standing with him, that is not as a result of anything we do, but as a result of God's grace and kindness to do for us through his son Jesus Christ what we could not do for ourselves. And now in this third section where we currently find ourselves, he is dealing with some objections that people are raising uh, to his teaching on the grace of God and the gospel, which to the minds of some was so radical. They thought Paul's teaching was so strong on the subject of grace that it would inevitably, they felt, lead people to conclude that they need not have any concern for the pursuit of holiness or godliness in their lives. As uh, one writer puts it, Paul is especially responding to the problem of those who think that his teaching on justification by grace through faith means that they can do as they please. In other words, he's refuting antinomianism, that is, the view that says, I'm a believer now and the law has nothing to do with me. Or even more boldly, I'm a believer now and it does not matter how I live. Now this sort of thinking is what Paul is taking aim at in this section of his letter. And accordingly, he's already spent a little bit of time in chapter 6 showing the foolishness of it. Uh, In the first part, where in the main, in that first section, he emphasizes the fact of the believer's union with Christ, our spiritual, real, very real spiritual union, spiritual connection with Christ. Because of this union, Paul argues, uh, Christ's death is our death. Because of this union, we were buried with Christ. Because of this union, his resurrection is our resurrection. We were raised with him, and our futures are all tied up with his, that is, with Jesus' future. That's the first response that Paul makes to this crazy notion that his teaching on grace promoted or encouraged sin. His second response is found in the last half of chapter 6, which we saw in our most recent look at Romans, and in which we see Paul using in that last half the imagery of slavery, of all things, to talk about how believers, when they embrace the gospel, undergo a change of masters, ceasing to be slaves to sin and becoming instead slaves to righteousness. This is a further reason why the notion that Paul's teachings encouraged sin was so patently ridiculous. 
Through grace, believers were delivered from the dominion of sin and brought into the service of Christ. And the reality, you see, of that change of masters will uh, evidence itself in a life not of self-indulgence in sin, but self-denial in the pursuit of holiness. Not because you must, but because you will. Not because of what you will obtain, but because of who you are, of what you have already obtained, and whose you are. Which leads us then to chapter 7 and the verses before us this morning. And just here, as we stand on the threshold of chapter 7, it's useful to hear John Stott's perspective on this, these verses as a whole, and this, this whole chapter, really. He has this to say, Romans 7 is well known to most Christian people because of the debate it has provoked about holiness. Who is the wretched man or the miserable creature of verse 24 who gives us a graphic account of his inner moral turmoil in in verse 15 and following, who cries out for deliverance and then immediately appears to thank God for it in verse 25. Is the person described in this chapter regenerate or unregenerate? That's the great debate about Romans 7. And you've got good and godly men lining up on both sides of that issue. And if it's the former, if it's a regenerate person, is he or she normal or abnormal? Uh, Mature or immature? Backsliding or going okay? The different schools of holiness teaching are obliged to come to terms with this chapter. You can't write a book on holiness or talk about the subject of sanctification without dealing with Romans 7 very thoroughly. And so, Stott goes on to say that the major question of this chapter is this. What is the place of the law in Christian discipleship now that Christ has come and inaugurated a new era? What's the place, the purpose, the role of the law for Christians now that Christ has come? So far in this letter to the Romans, if you were to go back and trace through everything that Paul has said so far about the law, you would see that almost all of Paul's allusions to the law have been somewhat critical. The law reveals sin, not salvation. It brings wrath, not grace. And these negative references culminate in what, to Jewish ears, would have appeared to be very shocking language for Paul to be using about the law. His epigram that Christian believers are not under law but under grace, you can imagine some of Paul's Jewish audience thinking, how dare this apostle, how dare he be so dismissive of God's law? One only has to read Psalm 19 and 119 to sense the enormous pleasure which godly Jews derive from the law. It was to them more precious than gold, than much pure gold, and sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. How then could the apostle, how could an apostle denigrate it as promoting sin rather than righteousness and death rather than life? 
How could he proclaim freedom from it? What did he mean that we are no longer under the law? Indeed, what did Paul mean by that? That, among other things, is what we'll be looking at together this morning. Before we go any further into that, let's pray and ask God, the Holy Spirit, to help us. O Spirit of God, by whose agency these scriptures were written, by whose work we were made spiritually alive, by whose power we have been enabled to understand things that on our own we would never understand, O Spirit that Jesus said he would send and did send to guide his disciples into all truth, would you please do that now? Would you please help us to grasp at least some of the significance of this portion of your word? Please help us to know uh, how it applies and how it doesn't. Help us to see through these words uh, a better, clearer picture of who you are and what you're up to in this world and how we can be more fully invested in that. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Paul writes this, Romans 7, verses 1 to 6. This is the only thing that infallible will be said this morning. Everything else is severely prone to error. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Do you not know that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies... She's free from that law, and if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law We're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now there's a lot in those verses, and we'll deal with some of that this morning, but there'll be portions of it that are are going to be isolated in the verses that follow portions of this that will be isolated in chapter 8. So if uh, some favorite part of this uh, this section of yours doesn't get dealt with this morning, it doesn't mean we're not going to deal with it. It might just be a few weeks in front of us. But as we look at these verses, it's not hard to see, I think, what the basic structure of this passage is. In verse 1, there's a principle that is stated. Verses 2 to 3, we get an illustration of that principle. Verses 4 to 6, we get an application of that principle. Particularly in this area of the relationship between Christians and the law of God, by which Paul almost certainly must mean the Mosaic law, the moral law. Firstly then, let's look at the principle as it's stated in verse 1. Here it is again. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, 
that the law, do you not know that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Now, on one level, uh, and at first glance, this seems a fairly obvious principle. So obvious that you may wonder why Paul bothered to state it in the first place. Why then is Paul bothering to make this point? seems clear that if a person dies, they're not subject to the law anymore. Well, firstly, he's building an argument. And this is his starting point, not his finishing point. Paul's going to take this admittedly simple principle and build an important point upon it in the following verses. So it's simple, yes, here, but he's not through with it yet. Secondly, while Paul says that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives, yet still nevertheless truly binding while he lives. In other words, it has a real lasting authority in a person's life. One commentator talks about it this way. What's Paul's principle, he asked. Paul's principle is simply this. Paul is telling us that you are under the law as long as you live. It has a permanent jurisdiction. And therefore, because it has been violated, this law that you live under has been violated by you. It has a permanent relationship to you of condemnation as long as you live. So the law is not the solution to our problem. Law keeping is not the solution to our problem. In fact, it becomes a part of the problem. Not because there's anything wrong with the law, but because there's something wrong with us. And we have already violated it. He's saying that at the end of the day, law keeping can't be the thing that you go to or you look to in order to gain favor with God because the law is the thing that because you have violated it has already rendered you guilty uh, in God's eyes. But there's a third reason why I think Paul's making this simple observation up front. And it's because while the law is truly binding upon a person for as long as he or she lives, it is binding only for as long as they live. In other words, there is something that can break the stranglehold that the law has upon people. And that thing is death. Why does that matter? Where's Paul going with this? Listen again to verses 2 to 3. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. See, Paul wants to illustrate this principle that he's just asserted of how death severs a person's bondage to law. He wants to show, but he wants to show more than just that. He also wants to show how death breaks one bond and at the same time properly liberates a person to be bound to another. The illustration that he finds most readily available to demonstrate such a thing is a marriage illustration in which a woman marries another man following the death of her husband. If she were to have married him apart from the circumstance of her husband's death, that is, if she had just walked away, then she would have been labeled an adulteress. But her husband's death frees her up to belong to another without being labeled an adulteress and is completely legitimate. And the reason I believe Paul chose this illustration is because in the next verse, 
He's going to connect all of this to Christ. And in particular, Christ's death, his death, as the thing that properly brought an end to the relationship between believers and the law as a kind of regulatory norm. Listen to verses 4 to 6 again. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You see, Paul respected and loved the law of God, even though his critics didn't believe that about him. He did respect and love the law of God, despite what his critics might have said. He was not a despiser of the law. The thing was, as a result of God's kindness to him, in saving him, opening his eyes on that road to Damascus, Paul finally, from that point, he finally and rightly understood what the law was and was not for, and what it could and could not do. And further, he understood that Christ came not to ignore the law or to write it off or to just cast the law aside in some cavalier fashion as if it didn't matter, as if it had no further use, as if its value as revelation of God was now ended. No, he came to do none of those things. But instead, in his own words, to fulfill the law. And he did so in two ways. Firstly, by all his life faithfully adhering to it, without failure, without sin or stain or blemish. And secondly, by submitting to its sanctions and penalties, not for his own sin, because he didn't have any, but for the sake of those for whom he came to live and die, his people, the people of God. And it was Christ's death in particular that is in view here in Paul's words as a thing that has finally and completely severed the bond between God's people and the law as he fulfilled the law at the cross. And he did that at two different levels. Two different levels going on here. For one thing, at kind of a macro level, big picture level, the coming of Christ culminating in his death and resurrection marked a big change. It marked the arrival and the inaugural, although not consummated, transition to the new covenant era that the prophets had spoken so clearly of. And in doing that, it moved God's people out of that period of time in which the administration of God's redemptive plans and purposes was by means of the written law and temples and the Old Testament sacrificial system and into the new age of the Spirit. We see this spoken of in different places in the Old Testament. For example, Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is not an external obedience to rules. It's an internally driven obedience to statutes by the, statutes by the work of the spirit. Also, Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like 
Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Not on stone tablets, on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So Christ's death severed the bond between God's people and the law at a large macro level, big picture level, by bringing the old covenant administration to a close and ushering in the inauguration of the new covenant era of the Spirit. But it also severed the bond at an individual level, a personal level, as it dealt with finally and forever the sin penalty for all of God's people and delivered them from the wrath and the condemnation of God, which Paul talks about in Romans 3, leaving the law with no more claim upon them. And please note that Christ's death, which breaks the bondage to the law and betroths us to himself, that movement is not intended to be the ultimate goal. That's not the end of the thing. As Morris puts it, our belonging to Christ is not an end in itself. It takes place in order that we might have fruitful lives. Believers are united to Christ for the purpose of producing qualities like love, joy, and the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. To be sure, as verse 5 points out, when we were in the flesh, by that he means, before we came to Christ, we bore fruit as well. We're always bearing fruit. But it was the fruit for death, or the fruit that led to death. But our union with Christ has an end, has a purpose. God's intention is not that we sit upon his mantle as merely as trophies of his grace uh, and kindness. His intent instead is that we should serve as still being restored, living images of God, as vice regents in his kingdom, as stewards of his creation. In other words, once again, Paul is showing, see his criticism, right? The criticism he's continually fighting is that his teaching on grace is going to lead to moral chaos. It's going to lead to a rejection of, of any concern for godliness or holiness. He's fighting that criticism all the time throughout these chapters. But Paul's showing here that his teaching on the grace of God is not something that would promote and encourage sin or lead to moral chaos. On the contrary, he's saying here that his gospel, his promoting the grace of God in Jesus, resulted ultimately in lives that would evidence the fruit of the Spirit. And an internally driven, spirit-driven concern for the things of God. And it needs to be emphasized that Paul's teaching that through Christ we have died to the law. That phrase, we have died to the law, is not, please don't understand that as an endorsement of antinomianism. That is, lawlessness. This view that there's no use or purpose anymore for God's law, moral law. What we have died to is the law as a covenant of works by which we might 
venture to merit a right standing with God. What we've died to is the law as that which stands over us and condemns us before a holy God. What we've died to is the law and the temple and the sacrificial system as the means by which the grace of God is administered to his people have embraced instead the new way of the grace of God in Christ to which the law pointed all along. So our release from the law is not from the righteousness that's taught in the law. Okay? Our release from the law is not from the righteousness that's codified in the law, that's found there. It's from the rigid demands of the law and the curse which follows from its demands. Remember, it's not the law that dies, but the believer. The law still points, and the law will forever point to the kind of thing that is pleasing in the sight of God. The law will always tell us what loving God looks like. God never sends us out to discover on our own or create our own lists or ideas or notions about what loving Him looks like. We have this law that says, here are behaviors and actions that God will see us participating in and He will interpret that, He will see that, He will experience that as love toward Him if we are serious about those things. And so the law always has that function. It's, it's, uh, it it's points to the kind of living that is pleasing in the sight of God. But the believer is dead to all forms of legalism. He will engage in upright living, not uh, as the result, uh, sorry, as the result, but not as the cause of his salvation. We do it because it's who, who we are, not because of what we hope to obtain by it. Indeed, it's interesting to note that, maybe some of you know this, but the New Testament, as one commentator's pointed out, is about a fourth the size of the Old Testament, right? One-fourth the size of the Old Testament. But the New Testament has twice as many commands as the Old Testament. Did you know that? Twice as many. Duncan says, if you're looking for freedom from rule, you're not going to find any relief in the New Testament. It's clear that freedom from the law doesn't mean freedom from rule. So what does it mean? I think uh, Stott again is helpful. He says, so we return to the question whether the law is still binding on Christians and whether we are expected still to obey it. And he says, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that Christian freedom is freedom to serve, not freedom to sin. We're still slaves. We're slaves of God and of righteousness, but also no. Because the motives and means of our service have completely changed. Why do we serve? Why do we serve? Not because the law is our master, and we have to, and we must but because Christ is our husband and we want to. Not because obedience leads to salvation, but because salvation leads to obedience. How do we serve? We serve in the new way of the Spirit, which is chapter 8 is going to have a whole lot to say, a lot of things to say about, and we'll wait till we get there for that. But in these verses, Paul has explained how and why it is that we are not under law, but under grace. And that's probably something you're going to spend the rest of your life learning to believe and wrap your head around. 
And I think the hardest time for us to remember this, that we are not under law, but under grace, I think the hardest time uh, to believe and act as if this is true is when we've really messed up. And when we have messed up big. Because when we're caught up in and undone by the discouraging blackness of our own hearts, our default mode in the wake of our biggest failures is to think that God couldn't possibly love us or want to have anything to do with us, at least not at the moment. And so we pull back and we hold God in the Scriptures and the church and our brothers and sisters at arm's length for a time until we can do enough things or score enough runs on the board to feel at least okay about our performance before God again. And we forget that we are not under law, but under grace. Don't get me wrong. I'm not about to suggest that the pursuit of godliness doesn't matter. Of course it does. But the way we think about it and understand what we're doing and why we're doing it can make all the difference in the world. It can be the difference between a glad, full-on, reckless pursuit of a God who has graced you into submission and a sweet humility be a difference between that or a grudging attempt to please a God who seemingly can never be satisfied, who always wants more than you have to give, who has burdened you with the pursuit of a righteousness that is always just beyond your grasp. A God that, truth be known, you're actually learning to despise. Why? Because you have forgotten that you are not under law but under grace. My brothers and sisters, you also have died to the law. You have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that you might bear fruit for God. Let's pray. Father, it's been quoted many times, but it's, uh, it's well said and it's worth quoting again just Martin Luther's statement about the gospel, Father, that it's the thing that is so hard for us to believe and we must beat it into one another's heads continually. Father, help us to grasp at some level the significance of what it means that we have died to the law. Help us to believe what seems incredible to believe. The greatness of your mercy toward us. 
your kind disposition toward us. To not believe Paul's critics are still around who are quite certain that severity will bring us in line and do not see how your kindness slays us, your kindness breaks us down. Father, would you continue to do that work that only you can do to bring about from within by your spirit the things which the law speaks of but doesn't have a hope of producing in us. Would you do that, Father? Would you help us to encourage one another when we see these things happening? Would you help us to encourage one another we need to come alongside one another and help each other to stand as we wrestle with our hearts. Father, by these means, make us more like Jesus. Help us to believe this gospel that is truly amazing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Those who are collecting the offering will come forward. We'll take that up at this time. This is... These funds are used to support the ministry of this church and a number of ministries through this church, uh, one of which you'll be hearing about in a few minutes.